Well, while you have bad hair and your clothes are soaked and your toes are curling up, we want to warm our hearts by hearing and studying God's Word. And so I want to invite you to turn, if you've not already done so, to the letter of Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 3. Colossians, chapter 3. We've been studying this book now for several weeks, and our theme that has guided us through the study is a study of real Christianity. And in this section of the book, we're talking about what's involved in getting real. What does it mean to get real in the Christian life? And we have studied a lot of different things as we've gone through chapter 3. But today, our focus is going to be on how to surrender all of your heart. Surrendering all of your heart. And if you found your place in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, would you follow along with me? And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we have every reason to be distracted today by the weather outside. But I'm so thankful, Lord, for the words that we have sung today that cause the rain to be a visual of our heart cry to you. That one day in this church and every church in our nation that calls on your name and believes your word, that you would pour out your spirit as this rain is poured out today. Filling every crevice, every hole, every spot, soaking it, saturating with your spirit. This is our desire. And Father, as part of that journey, may our study of your word today move us closer to that moment. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Paul, in chapters 1 and 2, explained that the foundation of your walk with God, your, your entire Christian life, has come about because when you trusted Him, He united you with Christ. Your union with Christ is the explanation for why you have a hope that one day when you die, you will go to heaven. Your union with Christ is why you know that you have been redeemed or set free from the power of sin. Your union with Christ is why you are now called to live a different kind of life altogether. And so when we come to chapter 3, he begins to work out the logic of what it means to be united with Christ. If you and I have been united with him, how do we live? 
Well, the first part of the chapter, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, he says, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Well, that makes sense. If you've been united with him, your focus should not be here, but should be where Christ is, and on him, and what's of importance to him. And so set your focus on him. Well, what's the next thing that should work out of our union with Christ? Well, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. We talked about not feeding or starving the sin monster. And it makes sense. If I've been united with Christ, should I continue in sin, Paul asks in Romans 6? He says, may it never be. God forbid. There's, there's makes no sense that if I've been united with Christ, I should go live any way I want to now when it comes to sin. So I should starve the sin monster. And then we saw the last two weeks that he says we should then be putting off old sin habits and putting on new godly habits. That the transformation of our character should be an outworking of our union with Christ. That if Christ is in me, I should progressively, increasingly become like Christ. And then today, he brings us to the next idea that makes sense if you've been united with Christ. And it's this, Christ in you is not just about change. It's also about control. Who's in charge? He didn't die on the cross just so you could be good. He died on the cross so he could be Lord, both of the living and the dead. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And how did the Father send Jesus? Jesus was totally dependent on the Father for everything he said and everything he did. He was all about the Father's will. He was all about the Father's mission. He was all about what was on the Father's heart. And so you've not only been saved, but you've been sent. You have a mission. You have an assignment. And so how do you live knowing that? That you're not just supposed to be transformed, but you're actually supposed to continue the work of Jesus Christ on earth as if he were here in person. Not only saved, but sent. In 1951, Pastor Robert Munger preached a sermon that became published as a little book called My Heart, Christ's Home. How many of y'all have read that little booklet? And there's a few of you. My Heart, Christ's Home. You can look it up online. I think you can get a free copy and just download it. My Heart, Christ's Home. And in that book, he argues that your heart is like a house. In fact, he, he preaches from Ephesians 3, I think it's verse 17, where Paul prays for the Christians in Ephesus that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. You say, well, I thought Christ was already in them. Yes, but he uses the word dwell that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Dwell means to settle down, make yourself at home, become part of the environment of the house. <laughs> and he says, he prays for these Christians that Christ would make his home in their heart. And so Munger preached this sermon where he described that there are different parts of the house that is your heart, different rooms, and how important it is to open up each room to Christ. Not to keep the doors shut, but to open them and let him come in and, and look at what you have in your library. Look at what you're doing in terms of 
putting things in your mind. Look at how you're making your decisions. And the Apostle Paul in verses 15 and 16 is telling us exactly that. In fact, he is very specific. He's telling us about three specific spaces in your heart and in your life that you should open up to Christ and let him come in. Are there spaces in your heart that you have kept Christ out of? You know, when people come to your house, if uh, there are some people, if you don't know them, they're total strangers, they're selling something, they only make it to the threshold, right? They're not coming in. It could be pouring down raining and they're standing there with an umbrella. They're not coming in. That's as far as they get. Some people come in, they make it as far as your living room, right? And you let them sit down there. But you don't want them going back and checking out the bedrooms. In fact, you've closed the doors before you answered the front door. Amen. And, and you're not, you're not, they're not coming back there. And, and, and so how far has Jesus gotten into your heart? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying that's next. If you are in union with Christ, it stands to reason that he should fill every space in your heart. And there are three critical spaces that he should fill. You'll notice in these two verses, there are actually three commands or three imperative statements. One is to let the peace of God rule. That's the first command. The second one is be thankful. The third one in verse 16 is let the word of Christ dwell. So one is let peace rule, the other is be thankful, the other is let the word of Christ dwell. Those are the three spaces. What are they? First, surrender your will. The doorway to your will should be open. And so I'm going to put that, I'm going to identify this door. There went my signs. I'm going to identify this door as the doorway to your will. And you should come to a place where you open the door of your will and let Jesus Christ come into your decisions. Look at those words again in verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body. Notice he says, let it rule. Permit it to happen. It's a command but it's not that you do something beyond permitting Christ to do something. You're permitting it. That's why I'm using the word surrender. You're not resisting his advance. You're surrendering to his advance. And then he uses the word rule. And this is a very, very special kind of word for rule. This is not the word for a kingly rule. This is the word that we would use to describe what an umpire does who officiates and makes the call on the field. He makes the ruling. He makes the choice. He chooses which way this game is going to be run. Now the peace of God can refer to two different things in Scripture. When he says, let the peace of God rule, what's he talking about? Well, there's one sense in which the peace of God refers to the ending of hostility. Two people fighting, and the fighting's over, there's peace. And this is the way peace is used in different parts of the New Testament, like Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have or possess right now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I may not feel like God's happy with me, but the truth is you are at peace with God. God is not at war with you. You have peace. It is a possession. It's a fact. It's right now. But there's another word for peace that is used in the New Testament. And this is more of an experiential kind of peace. This is a kind of peace that is best described as the absence of anxiety or dis-ease. You are at peace. It's used in Philippians 4, 7, where he says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. And then he says that the peace of God, would pat, which passes understanding, so it's supra-rational, it goes beyond understanding, and so it's experiential, and the peace of God will guard your hearts. And I believe that's the kind of peace that's being described here. Notice where he says that we are to let the peace of God rule in your hearts in your hearts in my inner world i am to allow peace to call the shots to make the call so i'm putting it together in this way when i'm under his direction there's a basic liberty from anxiety there's a liberty from worry why because he is the king he is in charge and my life is in alignment with his will And there is a settledness, a sense of being aligned with the heart and will of God. And this should be a ruling influence over me in every decision, every action. In September 1987, some friends of ours years ago, a couple were having a conversation. He was a farmer. He was retired from forestry service in Mississippi, and his wife had worked at Walmart for years, Harold and Margaret, September 1987. I was their pastor. Margaret says to Harold, you know that piece of land we bought that we owe money on it? We ought to sell this Walmart stock where I've worked for years. We ought to sell that Walmart stock and pay off the debt on that land we owe. Harold listened to his wife, and he said, well, honey, that doesn't make sense. That's the first mistake he made. He said, we're making such and such interest on that stock. We're making money on that stock. The interest on the loan is much, much lower than what we're making on the stock. Why would we want to give up this wonderful interest that we're earning potential of this stock and pay off this land? We're better off just to pay off the land. Five weeks later, October 19th, 1987, marked the greatest percentage drop in the stock market ever, almost 23%. It was called Black Tuesday. And that Walmart stock was less about, was, was now worth about half of what it had been five weeks earlier. Harold had not listened to his wife. When I listened to their story a few months later, And as uh, Harold and I had entered into a a discipling relationship and we were studying God's word together, he shared that story with me. He said his wife was not at peace with his decision. He said, I did not pray about it, and I wish that I had. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, what's the motivation for that? 
He says, because that's what you've been called to as a church. He says, to which you also were called in one body. We cannot follow Christ as head of the church unless we as individuals are following Christ as head. If he is not my Lord, how can we make a decision collectively to follow the Lord? The church is not a democracy. The church is basically a dictatorship. Not by the pastor, (laughs) not by deacons, not by staff, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we vote on something, it's not me expressing my will and what I want. When we vote as Baptists, what we're trying to accomplish is collectively to discern the will of God. What does the Lord want us to do? And so the door you and I have to first open is the door to our will. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. How do I do that? How do I let the peace of God rule in my heart? Two things. First, I need to yield my right to govern and guide my decisions and actions. i got to give it up. And this peace of God arises from the indwelling presence of Christ, who is the Holy Spirit. That peace arises from that. I want to read a passage of Scripture for you. John 14, verse 26 and 27. Jesus said, and it's going to be on the screen, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit is to be for you and me all that Jesus would be if he were here in person. And he lives inside every Christian. And then he goes on and says, right, the very next thing he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so the leading of the Holy Spirit is the peace of God. He puts the two together. When Christ is in charge and you have a sense that he is leading and he is the Lord and he is the director of your life and you've given directional control to him, he's going to take care of you. No matter what happens, he's got this. And you can be at peace. No matter what's going on in the world, stock market, politics, government, wars, diseases, doesn't matter. What matters is do I have the peace of God that comes from listening to the Holy Spirit of God? Have you opened the door of that place where decisions are made? Have you opened the door to your will to Jesus Christ? This is, by the way, the number one reason that when I'm talking to people, they are frustrated, they are fearful, they are unhappy, they are unsettled in their lives, is they are not at all connecting with or listening to the Holy Spirit of God. And that settledness is precious. That peace is precious. And it will guard your heart. But you've got to open the door to your will. There's a second door that you have to open. We need to surrender. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a point, didn't I? I almost got all the blank filling and people upset. Okay, there's a second part of this. Become sensitive and obedient to the Holy Spirit. Well, that makes sense. That's a logical outflow of what we just described. Peace is lost 
through insensitivity, through rejection of the Holy Spirit. He's extremely sensitive. He is a person. He is not an it. There's a pastor that tells a true story of a father and son having a conversation. Father walks into the room and he says, Max, why didn't you answer me when I called you? Max said, I didn't hear you, Dad. His father said, what do you mean you didn't hear me? Max didn't say anything. So his father said, son, how many times didn't you hear me? And he said, three or four. (laughs) And that's you and me sometimes in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We know he's speaking. We know he's prompting. We know he's leading. And we're not responding. And there's two things you need to understand about that. You might jot these scriptures down. I think the references are in your your, uh, handout. But there are two occasions we need to watch for very carefully. One is when Spirit says don't and we do. When the Spirit says don't and we do. And Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He had just said, Be angry and sin not. Don't, Don't be a part of being bitter and malicious and angry and so forth. Don't do that. And then he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So I grieve the Holy Spirit when I let something come out that He doesn't want me to bring out. The Spirit says don't, and I do. Grieves Him. And then there's another phenomenon. When the Spirit says do, and I don't. When the Spirit says do, and I don't. We call that quenching the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, he says, do not quench the Spirit. Right after that, he says, and don't despise prophesying. Those are movements of the Spirit of God where he leads you to speak truth, to say something. And to quench means to put out the Spirit's fire, to throw water on it. The Spirit says do and I don't. That's quenching the Spirit. The Spirit says, don't, and I do, is grieving Him. The Spirit says, do, and I don't, that's quenching Him. There's a wonderful little book called The Sensitivity to the Spirit by a pastor retired now named R.T. Kendall. And he describes the relationship you and I are to have with the Holy Spirit. And it should be one where we are sensitive to Him. Because He is pictured like a dove who flutters away at the first sign of danger. And you and I are to be sensitive to Him. And so we need to open the door to our will. But secondly, I need to surrender not only the door to my will, but there's another door. Surrender your attitude. Surrender your attitude. At the very end of verse 15, there's a second command. He says, and be thankful. And be thankful. Thankful. Now, the dictionary defines the word attitude this way. A settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. Attitude. Is Faye Cochran here? Yeah. How many of y'all know Faye Cochran? If you go up and ask Faye Cochran, how are you doing today, lady? What's she going to tell you? Blessed and highly favored every time with a big old smile on her face. Every time. That's attitude. (laughs) That's attitude. That's a grateful attitude. 
People with a dominant attitude of gratitude are people who get it. You may just jot down on your margin, Romans 1.21. This is not on the screen or your notes, Romans 1.21. Just listen to what Paul says. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. The true view of God is lost when we are ungrateful. It warps your perspective of who he is. He's holding out on me. He's not good to me. He's not gracious to me. He's hurting to me. And so when we are ungrateful, I don't see God as he truly is. God is good. He is good all the time. Everything God does is good. And so the grateful heart gets it. The grateful heart sees God as he is. The grateful heart is always seeing the hand of God around them and is grateful for his activity. Is there anything in your life right now that is causing you to be ungrateful. Your job, a friendship, a relationship, a marriage, what you have or don't have, and all these things, in the midst of those things, we are called to be thankful. How can I cultivate a grateful heart? Two things. I can practice first pointing out and describing the work of God in me and around me. I've done this two or three times in my life when I needed to do it. Gail and I did it early in our marriage, and uh, I've done it on my own since then several times. At the end of the day, keep a journal, a notebook. At the end of the day, just pause for a moment and write down something that God has done. Something that you have seen. Something that God is active in your life and you recognize it. And you know, that affects you. I was with a pastor one time and on Sunday nights when we had Sunday night worship, it was a very informal service and he would always start off the service by asking the question, how's the Lord blessed you this week? And it would always be silent. (laughs) You know, if we said, how do we need to pray for each other? We'd all have things to talk about. But how has God blessed you this week? Hmm. We have to think about that. And so, if this is an area where you need to grow, start a notebook. And just every day, at the end of the day, just write down one thing that God has done. One thing you see God doing. One thing you can thank God for. And you keep doing that, and guess what you're going to start noticing more and more? The goodness of God in your life. And it will affect how you see your work. It will affect how you see what you have or don't have. It will affect every relationship that you have. Pointing out, describing the work of God. Secondly, voicing satisfaction in Him. Voicing satisfaction in Him is part of your prayer life. Going to Him, giving thanks, doing thanksgiving. Lord, you are all I need. All I need. And I am satisfied in you. There is nothing I need that I don't have in you. 
I've been provided for. And I'm grateful for your care. And voice that to him. So we've got to open the door that involves an attitude. Attitude. And the dominant attitude that you and I are called to when we are one with Christ and Christ lives in us is thankfulness. Gratefulness. But there's a third door that you and I need to open in our heart. And that's to surrender your mind. Surrender your mind. There's a place in your heart that we would say involves your thoughts, what you think about, what you carry about with you, um, what you allow in your mind, and there's a whole room for that. And sometimes we don't let Christ into those places. There's certain, we tend to compartmentalize our life and say, well, what I'm thinking about today at this moment, that has nothing to do with what happens on Sunday. And it's okay if I read this, think this way, put this in my mind, watch this, listen to this, and so forth. And so I've got to let Christ come in there. Let him talk to me about what I'm reading. Let him talk to me about what I'm seeing and watching and listening to and putting in my mind. Notice he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's the same construction we had in verse 15. When he says let it happen, it's a command, but it's something I allow to happen. In other words, they're, they're, if, I, if I bring the word of God into my mind, it will dwell in me and it will be pervasive if I will open up my mind to the word of God. How do I let the word dwell in me? Three things. Make my mind a home and not a hotel for his word. You know what happens at a hotel? You're in and out. And, um, and I fear that if we're not careful, Sunday, we open our heart to the word. The rest of the week, it's a hotel. It just comes and goes. We listen to the sermon. We listen to the Sunday school lesson. Maybe we have a time during the day where we read the scripture at the beginning of our day, and it comes in, but we're not retaining it. We're not applying it. It's not affecting our daily thoughts. And we're still thinking the same way, and that colors everything that we do. And so my mind has to be a home for the Word of God. It needs to be a place where the Word comes and dwells. It's the same word that um, Pastor Munger was using in Ephesians 3.17, where he said that he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let the Word of God settle down, make itself at home in every area of your life. Let it dwell and as your pastor, I can't, I can't stress enough the value of doing whatever is helpful to you to retain Scripture in your mind. For some people, it's listening, and maybe you can listen to it on CD or an iPod and think about it, listen to it being taught. But let me tell you how to go a step further. When you hear God's Word and you learn something about God's Word and you're applying it to your life, share it with somebody. 
Tell somebody what you're learning. Tell somebody what God is showing you. And that's going to up your retention just that much more. Uh, Sunday school teachers got it really good. They do. They get to study it. They get to learn it. They get to apply it to their own life. And then they get to tell it. And they got a great advantage. There's a great value to that. And so if you're a person that writes things down, I would strongly, strongly encourage you to keep a notebook, a journal, or at least write it down in the margins of your Bible. And, I'm, and I tell you, I love technology. I love the ability at my fingertips to look something up. Um, I, I love that. But there is a tremendous value to reading and writing and sharing God's Word and its effect on us. If I don't make the effort to retain it, it's not going to stay there. Make my mind a home and not a hotel. Secondly, give him access and authority over every thought and opinion. He says, let his word dwell in you richly, abundantly, overflowing into every area of your mind, every area of your heart. Nothing is off limits. No closets stay closed. No rooms stay shut. Everything is open. Let his word dwell in you richly. Bring everything you think under the spotlight of God's word. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, he literally says, take every thought captive for Christ. Every thought subject to him. Thirdly, measure inner saturation with his word by the gracious character of my words. How do I know when his word is dwelling in me richly? Well, there's three participles, three ongoing activities that he describes in verse 16. He says, let the word of God or Christ dwell in you richly. And then he says in the New King James Version, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Teaching, admonishing, singing are the results of the word dwelling in your life richly. Teaching and admonishing go together. One of the problems translators have, if you have different versions of the Bible, one of the problems that translators have is where to put a couple of things in this verse. In the New King James, it looks like you're letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. But the truth is, in all wisdom can also be attached to teaching and admonishing. And then if you read some of the English translations, it says, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And then it says, in, as you, um, I'm looking at the wrong translation now, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Teaching in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And as I read that, it sounds like I'm, that's a teaching method. So Tommy Owens, when he teaches Sunday school here in a few moments, if he's teaching and moshing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, he ought to sing a solo. How about it? But that also can be attached to the word singing. So let me show you the New International Version, which I happen to think for 
a change, really captures this really well. Look at this on the screen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And that with all wisdom is describing how you teach and admonish. You do it tactfully. You do it wisely. You don't necessarily put people off. You give thought to my words. You weigh them. You share them carefully. And then he says, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitudes in your hearts to God. And there's all kinds of discussion about what are psalms. I think that's kind of obvious. That's Old Testament. What are hymns? These are human compositions, uh, songs that, that um, are not necessarily Scripture. And spiritual songs. Oh, I love that. These are songs that the Spirit gives rise to. Uh, this is singing with the Spirit or in the Spirit. That's a whole other sermon. We'll talk about some year from now. Spiritual songs. As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with grace or with gratitude in your hearts to God. Who's the audience? God. We're addressing Him when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing it to Him. And so when the Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, what's going to happen? Regardless of which version you read, the essence of it is that His Word spills out into my words. When I'm talking to you and you're talking to me, His Word is showing up in our conversation. Teaching is explaining truth. Admonishing is putting something in the mind that perhaps was absent or missing. That's why we call it a warning or a caution. And so teaching and admonishing one another. How? In all wisdom. It's the Word of God. It spills out. I'm telling you, if God's Word, if you've let Him come into your mind, His Word begins to show up in your daily conversation. His Word spills out in your words. When we said it at the beginning, but Christ in you is not just about change. It's also about control. Who is in charge? Who is calling the decisions in your life? Who is making the judgments? Is it me or is it him? People come to know Christ. They're truly born again. And Christ lives in them. But if it was automatic that the peace of God was going to rule, if it was automatic that we we're going to have a grateful heart, if it was automatic that the Word of Christ would dwell in us richly, He wouldn't have told us to do it. And if you don't cooperate with the work of God in your heart and your soul, you're never going to go there. The doors will stay closed, and you're going to go through your life, coming to church, I hope, attending Sunday school, listening. Your mind, the hotel, the word comes in, comes out, so it was a good sermon, it's a bad sermon. And then Monday through Friday, Saturday, you're doing the best you can to be a good Christian person. I hate that language. <laughs> I'm not sure we know what that means. 
to be a moral person. You're doing your best, trying not to embarrass yourself or embarrass the church. But you're missing out. You're missing out. Jesus promised a life that was abundant. And don't you want that? We're going to have a time of response, an opportunity for you to respond to what God has said. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is an opportunity in the service where we encourage people to come and publicly say, I've trusted Christ to save me. Salvation is not something we do, something He does for us. It's not something that I earn, it's something that I receive. It is a gift. Christ died on the cross for your sins so that your sins could be punished, paid for, and forgiven. All of them. And all that you do in response is receive the gift by faith and say, I'm turning from my life without God and I'm turning to you, Lord Jesus, and I'm putting my trust in you. As you look back over the course of your life, is it a shambles? Is it a mess? Do you know the truth on the inside about who you are without God and how it's going? If you get it and you see that, it's probably time for you to turn, to turn from a life without Him and to put your trust in Christ. There'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle. They'll explain to you how a person comes to know Christ in a saving way. They'll share Scripture with you. They'll answer your questions. All you need to do is come. And as always, we are here after service as well if you just need to talk further and more time than we have during the invitation. But we're here for you. We'll also, brothers and sisters, we're here to pray for you. The altar's open. We invite you to come and to pray for whatever burden is on your heart or response that you need to make. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for your teaching us and showing us what it means to let you into our heart so that you could live there. We know that you are in every believer, but not every believer is cooperating and responding to you. And we know that, Lord. And we thank you for, for showing us the way forward today in your word. Holy Spirit, guide us now as we respond to you. We pray in Jesus' name.